Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah chapter 33. I was thinking as I was worshiping just to the right of the stage as the choir and the praise team sang that song with you about satisfaction of a hymn I grew up singing, and I don't know that I remember all of the words, but the main idea is satisfied. And I remember the line very well. It said, satisfied, satisfied, I am satisfied with Jesus. But the question comes to me, as I think of Calvary, is my master satisfied with me? So in that song, just a few moments ago, we sang a psalm. That song is based on a psalm. It's the psalmist saying, Lord, satisfy me with your love. Fill me with your presence. We know that the human condition is one of impulse and urge and desire. And there are things we come into this world wanting. And that as we gain cognitive realization of the surrounding around us, we want more of what the world has. And we recognize in the Christian life that often our greatest righteousness comes when we find satisfaction in the Lord. And over time, we realize as we walk with the Lord, many of you have been walking with the Lord for many, many years, he's just better. He's just better. He delivers on his promises. He satisfies our souls. I have sat with many, many, many people who have tried their best to find satisfaction in things of the world, whatever it may be. And it never delivers on, it, on its promises. But when you dig deep into the love of God, you are never disappointed because he satisfies. Oftentimes, preachers will use language like this at the conclusion of their sermon. But every once in a while, we need to make sure you're in the sermon for the right reasons. So I want to ask you right now, before I open my Bible, I have my finger held in Jeremiah. My Bible now opens to Jeremiah. In fact, I don't even know that the other pages will open. I'm going to have to buy a new Bible when I get out of Jeremiah in five years. And so, it's not going to take that long. January, January. But before I crack open this word and preach to you a passage that I'm very excited to preach to you about, I've been studying it all week. It's been on me all week. I'm ready to get it off me and on you. Are you satisfied with Jesus? You know, typically in an evangelical church, in a church with a Baptist history, we're really good about asking people, are you saved or are you unsaved? Are you lost? That's a good question to ask. We take our cues from the Lord. In fact, Jesus told people like Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Jesus said things like, I came to seek and save that which is lost. It's not offensive to help someone understand that they may be lost without a relationship with Christ. M many of you have a relationship with Christ. Your presence this morning, your weekly discipline to be in church, whether you're watching online due to your own decisions about your personal health or conflicts with your schedule or travel, or you're here with us live, the discipline of participating in and setting under the preaching of God's Word is testimony that, that there is a desire within you to follow Jesus. Now, I recognize that many people attend church for all sorts of reasons. Some of you this morning would have to be honest in saying your motives might not be as pure as they should be. You may be here out of obligation. You may be here because someone asked you to be here. You may be here uh, to witness a friend or a family member be baptized. You may be here as a guest. You may be here because someone you love asked you to come and you decided to come to appease them. 
Everybody comes into the room with a different set of expectations and motivations. But if you would, just allow me to ask you to be incredibly honest with yourself in answering this question. Are you satisfied with Jesus? Is he enough? Has he kept his promises in your life? I know you expect me to say he will, he is, and he does. And I do believe that. And I'm about to say that from this text. But before your heart can receive this word, before you and I turn this into yet another Bible study, why don't you be honest with the Lord this morning and ask yourself the question, are you satisfied with Christ? Is he fulfilling your needs and do you find your peace, your hope, your purpose, your joy in him. See, I believe Jeremiah has met the Lord. Jeremiah's dead and Jesus is in heaven. And therefore, Jeremiah and Jesus are in the same place. Now, I can assure you today, based on the testimony of God's word, that Jeremiah is completely satisfied with Jesus. But Jeremiah lived hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth. Now, we know that Jesus has always existed. We believe clearly the Bible makes no hesitation in declaring that God is one, there is one God, but he has revealed himself in three persons. We call this within Orthodox Christianity the Holy Trinity, and it is Father, Son, and Spirit. All coexist together, all are equal, all are in one, the Godhead. They are not different in their design, they are different in the manifestation of their presence, but there is one God who reveals himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. This is what the Scriptures indicate. And therefore, we know that Colossians 1, for example, tells us that by Jesus, all things were created. He made all things through Jesus. In fact, God says that he created through his spoken word. He spoke and day and night were separated. He spoke and the sea and the land were separated. And then in John 1, when Jesus came, John says, the word was God. The word was with God. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. So John called Jesus the Word of God, the spoken, the outline, the manifestation of who God is. And so we know Jeremiah has met this Jesus. But did you know that hundreds of years before Christmas, in a prison cell, Jeremiah received a vision of this great restorer? Have you ever seen before and after pictures we use them all the time. There are before and after hair loss pictures. It's always a bald guy, he's by himself. The next picture, he's got the most beautiful head of hair and a beautiful woman on his side. There's reason they do that, right? Because men aren't chasing the hair, they're chasing a relationship, right? Or the before and after weight loss pictures. I've made many before pictures in my life you know, where I'm saying, this is it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take a picture to remind myself of what I'm not going to look like come next summer. I don't want to jiggle when I move in front of the mirror. And then there are before and after pictures of classic cars. We see those all the time. And people who take a car from 
the back of someone's yard and completely restore it. There are before and after real estate pictures, old homes that have been completely and totally restored. And typically when we see something like that, we have two reactions. The first one is to react to the beauty of it. Wow, that looks amazing. I'm not sure I'd be interested in living in the house on the left unless I was paying to go through it at Halloween. But on the right, I could live there. I could see myself enjoying that house, yet it is the same house, the same bones, the same structure, the same foundation, the same lot, the same street address. The difference is the one on the left has left unrestored in disrepair, disrepair, and the house on the right, being the same house, has been fully restored, fully remodeled, fully taken back to its original beauty. And then the second question we have once we see something like that is, who did that? Who did that? What contractor did you use? Girl, your hair looks good. Who does your hair? Wow, you look great. What gym are you going to? Who is your trainer? Where did you get the diet that you are on? Man, that is a beautiful set of plans. Which contractor are you going to hire to bring that to life? What an amazing car. Did you restore this car or did you buy it restored? We know something about restoration. Anytime restoration occurs, anytime you step into the presence of something that has been restored, somebody did it. And we want to know who that somebody is. Well, we've been in this sermon series called Restoration because within the greater book of Jeremiah is what's called the book of consolation. It is Jeremiah 30 through our chapter this morning, chapter 33. And inside this book of consolation is this idea of restore. If you have your Bible open to Jeremiah chapter 33, let me show you what I mean. Look at verse Seven, if you will. Jeremiah 33, verse 7. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. Look at the second part of verse 11, for example. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first says the Lord. Now scroll all the way down or turn all the way to the very last sentence of chapter 33. That specifically would be the fourth phrase of verse 26. Jeremiah 33, verse 26. Right at the end, for I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. Three times throughout this chapter, I will restore, I will restore, I will restore. These have been some of the most hopeful message in this sermon series called Restoration. I've been telling you from day one that the noun, the word restoration in the English language, what does it mean? The action of returning something to a former owner, place, or condition. And we camped on it and dwelt on it and talked about the characteristics of the restoration and the implications of the restoration and the impact that the restoration can make on our lives. But we got to ask the question, who does the restoring? Who is the restore? And I know, obviously, the Sunday school answer is, well, God. God is the one who's going to restore. Remember where we are at this point? For those of you who may be guests of ours, the book of Jeremiah is a prophetic book from a man named Jeremiah who's been given a divine message of discipline from God. God had been gracious and kind and patient for generations with Judah, with the southern kingdom of Israel, with the area known as Judah and the city known as Jerusalem. But finally, 
after years of rebellion and disobedience, after God laid out exactly what God's will is and they turned and walked away from it, he's going to bring judgment through the form of the Babylonians. Jeremiah's job is to pronounce this judgment. But as I have told you from week one of this sermon journey through Jeremiah, even when God delivers prophetic judgment corporately to a nation, he's always looking for individuals who will respond repentantly, who will come before the Lord and say, I cannot be held responsible for the sins of my nation, but as much as it depends on me, I'm willing to deal with you about my sin. I'm willing to deal with you about my hopelessness. I want you to be the Lord of my life. I turn to you. And of course, when we turn, we find the satisfaction that only he can provide. But right in the midst of this time, just before the Babylonians are going to destroy Jerusalem, Jeremiah finds himself in jail. Now, he's not been locked up by the Babylonians. He's actually been locked up by the king of Judah, a man named Zedekiah, because Jeremiah was bad for Zedekiah's PR. Jeremiah had been canceled. We know what that's about. Basically, Jeremiah's message didn't jive. And so Zedekiah said, you're doing me more damage than good politically. I'm going to lock you up. And while he's locked up, he receives word from the Lord. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 33, look at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time. Do you know why it says a second time? Because the first verse of chapter 32 says the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the first time. The first time is in verse 1 of chapter 32. The second time is in verse 1 of chapter 33. And it is this word of restoration, but something good happens here. In addition to all the talk of restoration that we have covered with great thoroughness, Jeremiah sees the Redeemer. Jeremiah gets a picture of the one who would bring ultimate restoration. This morning, I only want to camp on four verses, and I want to begin in verse 14. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Nothing new, we've heard this before. But watch verse 15. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch. And if you have a modern translation, you may notice the B is capitalized in branch. That's the editor's way of telling you this is a messianic promise. More about that in a moment. A righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Jehovah Sidkanu in the Hebrew. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. And then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time. Then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken. Jeremiah sees 
the restorer. Now, it's a word about messianic prophecy. Let me explain. We know that the most clear picture of Jesus in the Bible is in the New Testament. It begins in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all four of those are called the Gospels, and all four of those are detailed accounts of the life of Christ. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the books that follow, known as the New Testament, New Covenant, from the book of Jeremiah is where we get that term, are not the first place we see Jesus. In fact, all throughout the Old Testament, over hundreds of years, over many different generations, we find prophets under the inspiration of the Spirit prophesying that a Savior would come. So basically, the people of God can be broken into two categories. There were people who faithed a coming God, who believed forward that the Messiah would come, and for those of you who are Christ followers in the room this morning, and those of you listening to me online, you would fall in the same category as me. I faith looking backwards, believing he has come. Now, I do have something in common with those Old Testament believers. Just like they believed forward that Jesus was coming, I have the luxury of knowing he did come, but I join them in believing forward that he's coming again. He's a twice-coming Savior. He came the first time to do the work of salvation, came humble, came as a peasant, shunned, scorned, rejected, came in a very indiscreet way. God was showing the humility of the Son of God. The next time he comes, he's not coming as the son of a peasant. He's not coming as a carpenter's son. He's not coming to be born in a stable, a manger. He's not coming to be crucified. He's coming to execute justice. He came the first time to be a savior. He'll come the second time as a king. So we live between the first and the second coming. Jeremiah lived between the creation of God and the first coming. But just to show us that this is not a made-up fairy tale, that this is not historical narrative that's been twisted, I want you to see the accuracy with which Jeremiah prophesies the coming Christ. Now, the interesting thing about Old Testament prophecy is that when they look forward, they see Christ, but not clearly as you and I do. They are prophesying in the Spirit. Jeremiah could never have made these things up, for they're far too accurate. They came true. But Jeremiah's looking forward doesn't just look forward to when Jesus was born or when Jesus died. Jeremiah looks all the way forward to the consummation of the kingdom. And in that, we get the most beautiful picture of this restore. So if you were to step out one day, 10,000 years from now, and you were to see a new heaven and a new earth, and for those of you who are saved, if you were to look around and you were to see no night and no darkness and no tears and no pain, there's no sin and no sorrow, no sickness and no death, no caskets and no mortuaries, no funerals to attend, no hospitals to build. If you were to stand there and look at a new heaven and a new earth before you, I believe one of the things you would ask is, who did this? And this is what Jeremiah shows us here, and he shows us four aspects of who he is. Look what the Bible says, beginning in verse 15. In those days, and at the time I will cause, and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. The first thing Jeremiah sees 
is the righteousness of his power. One of the problems that Jeremiah is dealing with is what we're dealing with today, failed human leadership, failed worldly leadership, failed political leadership, and failed spiritual leadership. We know that leadership is at an all-time need, and there seems to be a great deficit. Imagine Jeremiah called out of a priestly family to be a prophet of God, only to find his greatest enemies are the king of his nation and the prophets who he was supposed to be a peer to. Remember, he is not incarcerated because the Babylonians have jailed him. He is incarcerated because his own people would not receive the message of truth. And so as Jeremiah in the spirit begins to look forward to a righteous leader, notice what he says about him in verse 15. He says, in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot down the word origin and the word operation. The origin is a righteous branch. You ever cut a tree down? I don't mean a massive tree. Most of the time when you have massive trees, you have a professional arborist, a tree service, cut them down. And then someone will come with a stump grinder and they will grind them to where they're a few inches below the surface of the topsoil and then you'll cover it up. But if you've ever been clearing land and you've cut a small tree down, something two, three, four, five inches in diameter, something that you can cut down with a machete, a hatchet, a chainsaw, whatever. You cut the tree down, you drag it into the wood, you drag it out of the way, you drag it out from where you want it. If you ever notice, even if you bush hog the area, even if you trim it, as soon as you cut it down, if it's warm, if it's during the spring or the summer, you'll start to see sprouts of branches come out of that stump. Because even though you have cut the trunk of the tree, you have done nothing to affect the root system, the root ball. And because of that, while that tree was growing up for many, many years, roots were growing down. Cutting the tree off doesn't kill the root. And this is why, unless you actually grind it down, dig it up, or poison it, the smallest little stump will keep having branches come out of it. Now, this is a very simple, very organic illustration. But the fascinating thing about it is, it's an illustration that everybody, everywhere, at every time on the planet can relate to, which is exactly why God says, that's what I'm going to do through David. David may be cut down. His kingdom may be divided. But out of him is going to come a righteous branch. In Jeremiah chapter 23, we see another prophecy that's very similar. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. So this happens almost 10 chapters before this one. Well, actually, 10 chapters before. And he shall reign, and as a king, deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Now, the fascinating thing about that is that one of the things that Jeremiah saw from this coming leader is that not just who he was going to be, but how he would do his job. He would do it rightly. He would do it purely. There would be power in his righteousness. And one of the things the scriptures indicate is that it had to come from Davidic line. God had made a covenant from Abraham to David to the coming Messiah. 
This is why in Matthew chapter 1, we read a genealogy of Jesus. And look what it says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Go backwards in that sentence. Abraham was the one God said, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and through you I will bless the world. And then God said, David, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and through you, through the Abrahamic covenant, I will bring a king to the world. And Jesus is the living, breathing, active covenant of Abraham and fulfillment of David. This is why when we get to the end of the redemptive story in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, what does Jesus say about himself? I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am. In other words, this was not induendo. This is not nuanced. Jesus said, I am the root, the branch. Remember, I just described it. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus saw the righteousness of his power. Jeremiah wrote it. Secondly, Jeremiah saw the restoration of his people. Look at verse 16 of our home text. In those days, he's talking about that future day of total restoration. Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. You know, cities have important names. Some of them mean something. Some of them don't mean anything. You can always tell if somebody's from around here if they can pronounce the towns correctly. In my home state of Alabama, there's an Arab Alabama. You know, it's spelled Arab, but don't go to Arab and say Arab. It's Arab. There's a Dothan. It looks like it's spelled Dothan, but don't go down to Dothan and say Dothan. Think about those two old ladies. They were driving down the road one day, and one of them passed a little town in Florida, and she said, isn't that so sweet? Look at that town. The town's name is Kissimmee. The other lady said, are you kidding me? That town is Kissimmee, Florida. She said, no, I think the town's called Kissimmee. Isn't that sweet? They got a little argument about it. It was about lunchtime, so they went in to have lunch, and while they were ordering their food, they stepped up to the register. Young lady was there, and they said to the young lady, listen, we're not from around here. We've gotten into a little debate about how to pronounce where we are. How do you say this place? The girl looked at him rather puzzled and said, Burger King. <laughs> I always want to give you a little something to take with you. When Jeremiah sees the restoration, he sees that not only will Jesus, the Messiah, come, the name of the people and the city they dwell in will reflect the character of their God. Now, remember, this is a man who's prophesying destruction over a city that has abandoned God. Adultery is running amok. Idolatry is running amok. Even child sacrifice, as we've seen, has infiltrated the people of God. So everything wrong with your nation was wrong with Jeremiah's nation. Everything that he ever wanted to see done had been undone. Yet when he sees this restore, he says his restoration will be so thorough 
that not only will he be known as the one who executes justice and righteousness, he will have such an impact on his people that the name of their town will be the Lord is our righteousness. Now, when you think about that in relationship to prophecy, Isaiah indicated the same thing. He said, and I will restore your judges as the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So they have in their mind a picture of Jerusalem that is perfect and holy and just. Well, you and I know where that picture is. Zechariah 8 says it this way. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of the host, the holy mountain. Now, there is a question here. Is Jeremiah prophesying about Jerusalem after the Babylonians destroy it, before Jesus? Or is he prophesying about a future Jerusalem? Well, that's the now, not yet moment in biblical prophecy. There are going to be times of great faithfulness in Jerusalem after Jeremiah. There's a remnant that will return. That's where we get books like Nehemiah and Ezra. I've taught you that. And we know that even when Jesus comes, we bump into people who are being faithful and praying and seeking the Lord. And so there's always a remnant of faithful. But when you begin to study this language, you see that Jeremiah sees a new city. I don't know, a new Jerusalem. Do you know how your Bible ends? Revelation. In the Revelation of Christ, chapter 21, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then we begin to pick up on something. Watch this. Stay with me. He's using words to refer to people, not places. Isn't that what God's been chasing the whole time? Places have significance in as much as they are filled with people who are righteous. You can have a beautiful church building filled with false teaching. You can have a shack no one wants to go in filled with people who are praying and being faithful to the Lord. The place is significant because the God is there of the people and the people of the God are there communing. And then you begin to see fulfillment in the New Testament. When Jesus comes and lives inside the church, we're called the holy people. We're called a kingdom of priests. We're called, get this, the body of Jesus. In other words, as God looks at his future fulfillment, he does not see a separation between Jesus the king and Jesus his body. In fact, the second coming reunites what has been interrupted. The body of Christ is here on earth the souls of those who know him are with him, and the head of the church, Christ, is dwelling at the right hand of the Father. But at the second coming, the head of the church and the body of Christ will be forever joined together. And you say, well, this is great, Pastor. What does this mean to me tomorrow? Don't say you love Jesus and stomp all over righteousness. Don't say you love Christ and not be willing to deal with your own sin. Don't worship Christ with one side of your mouth and bash or judge or hurt others with the other side because God in the future sees no separation between the character of the Messiah and the character of those whom he saved. 
Which is why the call to be holy in the scripture is not about perfection. It's not for any man or woman to stand up in this room and say, I figured it out, I never make a mistake. No, no, no. But the call to be holy is to say, I was lost and now I'm found. Therefore, I don't own myself. I am bought with a price. I'm a child of the king. He calls the shots. So I have to react as he would want me to react. I need to speak as he would want me to speak. I need to love and live and give and share and be kind as he would want me to. And when I fail, and surely I will, there is a heartfelt conviction that not only have I failed personally, I failed to do my part in the identity of the new people he has restored. There's just two more, and I got two minutes. You ready? Number three. Jeremiah sees the reliability of his permanence. Aren't you thankful that people don't serve in their elected place forever? Aren't you thankful that even the most wicked dictators of the past are all dead? But wouldn't you like to know there could be a place where there's one leader and he never ceases to be the leader because he's perfect at leading. Now, our news outlets wouldn't know what to do, but it sure would make life peaceful if I could live with my family under one good leader forever. Look what the Bible says in verse 17. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of his house. In other words, Jeremiah says, when this king comes, there'll never be a moment where we need to look for a new king because the king we get from God is always going to be the king. There's no politics involved. There are no election buildups. There's no divisiveness or divisiveness. There's no distraction. We serve him and he is reliable. Now, here's the good news. For those of us who know Christ, that's how it is today. I got my king. Presidents will come and presidents will go. The political talking points today will be different than they are 10 years from now. The condition of our nation will certainly not be what it is today, and it's certainly today not what it was 50 years ago. Everything about this life is changing, but not my king. He does not move to the left or to the right. He never fails. My confidence is in him. Which then leads me to worship him even more because of how redeemable his presence is. Fourthly, let me show you very quickly how not only is his permanence reliable, his presence brings reconciliation. Look what happens in verse 18 and we'll close. For thus says the Lord, verse 17, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in the presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. What are we talking about, Jeremiah? Are we talking about a king or are we talking about a priest? Jeremiah, are we talking about a priest or are we talking about a prophet? 
Jeremiah, are we talking about a king or a prophet or a prophet who's sometime a priest? When you study the theology of Jesus, it's called Christology, Christology. And one of the ways you study Christology is you study how he fulfilled all three offices. He was prophet, priest, and king. Before Jesus came, there were prophets, Jeremiah's one. There were priests, and there were kings, and all of them failed. But when Jesus came, he fulfilled the final prophet, the final priest, and the final king. One of the things that Jeremiah and his people were losing was the sacrificial system that had been outlined in the, in the Levitical law. And it was a gaping hole in their heart that all of a sudden the atonement for sins as outlined by the scriptures was not going to be taken up. When King Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple, there is no more animal sacrifice. There is no more holy of holies. There is no more Ark of the Covenant in the inner room. There is no more priest going before the people and coming back on behalf of God for the people. None of that is going to exist. And Jeremiah says, but I see a priest who will always stand in the presence. And there is no proper noun there because in the presence was just understood. He's talking about the presence of God. This is the role of the Old Testament priest. Don't get priests confused with modern-day Roman Catholicism. I'm talking about ancient Judaism. And the priest in the ancient Judaism practices of the Old Testament would go before God on behalf of the people. He would cleanse himself of sin, and then he would stand in the presence and offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. He was the intercessor. He made atonement. And we know that when Christ came, not only was he the sacrificial lamb, he was the priest who laid the lamb on the altar. No one held him to that tree. Certainly those nails would not hold him there. It was his priestly love for us to lay his life down on our stead or in our stead or place. And the fascinating thing about this passage when it says what it says about this verse, beginning specifically in verse 17 and then into 18, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in the presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices. Do you know what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus? I love this. Hebrews chapter 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing their office. Now, that sounds like a Captain Obvious verse. We had to have more than one because they died. Your grandmother or your great-grandmother had a different dentist or doctor or school teacher than you do because they died. Nothing's permanent. But the writer says, but he, talking about Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. There's never a time when I don't have an advocate on my side before the Father. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. The enemy would love to defeat you with the failures of your past and make you believe you're disqualified from being right with God. The reality is if you woke up this morning, there is grace for you to be right with God. It may require confession and repentance, turning from sin, but you can be right with God because Jesus is ever before the Father providing intercession. Now, it doesn't have to keep dying. This is why evangelical Christians don't have crucifixes in their home. That's why you won't see a crucifix hanging on the wall of our church. With respect to our friends and neighbors in the Catholic Church, our theology demands an empty cross. He's not there. That work has been done. 
There is no more suffering for sin. It is finished. I have an empty cross and an empty tomb and a filled throne and a full heart. This is the truth of the gospel. But even though there is no more need for sacrifice, the blood that was shed can still be applied for sin. The blood that gives me strength from day to day shall never lose its power. It reaches to the highest mountain. It flows to the deepest valley. It shall never lose its power. There's another prisoner named Charles. He got locked up in the late 60s. He was Richard Nixon's hatchet man in the Watergate scandal. This is the day he was arrested. You'll see his mugshot. Just before he went to prison, he got radically saved. Some folks think he was trying to get out of a long sentence, but proof, the time proved that, no, he truly did come to know Christ. He had been a very nominal person associated with Christianity, but his main driving force was to serve at the wishes of Richard Nixon, who ultimately resigned in shame because of the Watergate scandal. Chuck Colson was his hatchet man. He went to prison, and when he came out, his life was never the same. He spent his whole life ministering, preaching, teaching, and helping prisoners. This is what he said. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Jeremiah's in prison, and he sees Jesus. Chuck Colson was in prison, and he found Jesus. I don't have time to deal with it this morning, but at the end of the chapter, this is what God says. If you can figure, I'm paraphrasing, if you can figure out how to stop day from coming and night from coming, I'll break my promise. But as long as the sun comes up and the sun goes down, you can count, I'm going to send my Redeemer. And he did. Did the sun come up this morning? Sure did. I remember when I was a coach, we'd have a tough game, we'd lose. I'd always say to my players, hey, sun's going to come up tomorrow. This doesn't define you. I didn't know until I studied this chapter God invented that. As sure as the sun comes up every day, I will keep my promises. Are you satisfied with him? And is he satisfied with you?